I mean, my editing skills are good, but they're not good enough to make me funny and Northern. You can have one or the other. You can't have both. That's my tea. Um, Who's that right. Northern bloke who says otherwise? Wait, no, there aren't any. They're professional Northerners. They're usually from Manchester. We don't talk about them because they're essentially, they're below the age of the North, so they're technically Southerners. I mean, they practically live in a suburb of North London. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, we are recording this on the eve of lockdown. We're going back into it, so we are going to bring you a little tribute today to fitness. Dr. Jackson, do people know what they're listening to? No, they don't, Dr. Hines, because we took a Christmas break even though we have wonderful episodes coming up. So we've essentially, listeners, can we say listeners? Do we actually have more than one now? Have we established no, that? Apparently you should always, you should never think of it as listeners. It's always that one special listener, that one <laughs> special friend that you're, you're, you're making an important contribution to their lives. Is this like the special friend that I had in childhood who turned out to be completely imaginary? Yeah, basically. Right. I mean, it's literally like like that special friend. Okay, the the one that I used to talk to in, in difficult two Ks, which was all of them essentially in difficult races, which was also all of them. This isn't season two of Broken Oars podcast. Uh, we don't operate on a, a seasonal principle, as far as I'm aware. I'm sure if we do, like season one, season two, season three, you know, we jump the shark in season four, but we managed to rein it back with strong script writing in season five. Essentially, we publish bi-weekly, except when we don't, which was when it was Christmas, and one of us long, has long COVID and still has it. That will be me. And Lewin has a bad knee. How did you knack your knee, Dr. Hines? Knack um, your knee. That's a very Geordie thing to say. Eee, canny lad, how did you knack your knee, like? Whilst training for a 500-metre sprint event, which which I actually really regret not taking part in, because um, shout out to Runcorn Rowing Club for this, because Alex at Runcorn Rowing Club um, developed a little bit of software that lets people race online, handicapped for their weight or age which is pretty cool i think well at your age and your weight it's essentially something that you really need no 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 it, it, it's the lightweights that really benefit from it and and the lightweights do get like a big old big old boost for it so you followed a lightweight you let me just get this straight you followed a lightweight training program. Oh, oh, please don't say this. The same lightweights that you've said, go and get another job, buy a bike to, and it's basically, it didn't break them, but it's broken you. I, I'm, I can hear lightweights up and down the country <laughs> doing tap dancing, not in the street, obviously. because Literally on my there. grave, yeah. Yeah, literally um, on the grave of your broken knee. That they, they, you know... The, the program designed to make them fit and fast made a, a heavyweight rower of some repute and speed go, I don't want to play anymore. My legs don't work. But yeah, it's getting a bit better. And I'm actually sort of like, I'm actually doing some erging again, which is nice. And, and I'm going to a physio tomorrow. I, he Are says, you? oh, that's a good question. It's medical. It's it's medical. It's it's medical. So it, you're allowed to, I think. I, oh, I don't know if, if I should. Yeah. I'll call call them and see what the policy is. It's definitely got better. 
it still hurts quite a lot, but now it's quite strong and it hurts, whereas before it was quite weak. I know what you mean. I, I know the distinction you're making between it really hurts, but you can keep going, and it, it really hurts, and you can't. There, there, there is there is function within that particular joint again, which is nice. And and so I've been doing, I've I've been I've been doing lots of rowing at half slide, which is quite funny. It's, it's actually sort of like remarkably easy to keep the heart rate down when you're not at full slide. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious, I'm curious how this is going to play out because if you've been following our Twitter thread, you will see that um, Thames Tradesmen's have signed us up for their lemon race um, with Andy Triggs Hodge and Jack Beaumont, um, where essentially we have to find the oldest and most knackered shell we possibly can for a set price, and then we have to do some kind of Le Mans 24-hour row. So okay, you, right. You've got okay. a knackered knee. Well, okay, look, I, I actually really quite like this. How, how many lengths of the tideway can you do in 24 hours in this knackered boat? I, I really like this idea. On the tideway, in 24 hours, they'll have tides and everything. We could drown, especially a man of my age and your knee. Oh, well, I, okay. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe how many lengths of the Henley Reach or something that we can do. But yeah, I, I, I saw this and I thought this was actually, A, a very good use of the frankly knackered boats that do hang around nearly all boathouses. There are very few boats, very few boathouses and clubs that don't have completely and utterly knackered boats out there um i mean it, uh, have, have you ever heard of um i'm not sure quite I, I think i mean they're finished so they don't call it dollar racing but the fence have got this great motorsport where basically everybody's car has to be for sale so if somebody comes up to you and says I want to buy it. You have to sell it to them for, and there's a fixed price. In the middle of a race? Um, no, but before a race or after a race. Okay. So there's an absolute fixed price. So everybody's car is worth 1500 kroner, for instance. Okay. And so somebody can come up to you and say, I want to buy your car. You have to sell it. to them. You, you get the money, but they get your car. So you can, it never makes sense to spend more than 1,500 kroner on a car. Ah, okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a self-limiting thing to make sure the playing field yeah. is somewhat level. Yeah. So, so the only thing that makes sense is that like your own mechanical ingenuity, um, and even then it doesn't make sense to go out and buy like a lathe or something to make new parts for this car because then you're investing a huge amount of time that isn't going to get, be given back to you because you can only sell the damn thing for 1500 quid dirt track banger races around the Finnish forests and nobody goes very fast. So very relatively few people die and sort of like there are age limits of 12. Um, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, that, that, that kind of struck me as, as something that we could do. So you, you go out with your your budget and you bring back a boat, but literally at the start, people can come up to you and say, I want to buy your boat. And they can just give you 500 quid for it. 
this is what Thames Tradesmen have, have done then. They've, they've essentially launched a waterborne version of, of what you're talking yeah, about. Or, in the, in or, the, or basically finished banger racing. I think what's happened here is we haven't been broadcasting over Christmas because you've, you've been dying from a wounded knee and I've been dying from long COVID. The, and they've just spent four weeks playing their own Thames Tradesman's drinking game and they've just randomly <laughs> come back with this. I, I mean, we have to do it. It's just, it's a simple, you know, we've, they, they've called us out on a demand that we respond. But given that my, my heart rate now maxes out when I just walk from the top of the stairs to the bottom, um, it could be a very interesting and very short race from my perspective. It, so does, it does seem as though your, your long COVID is slightly improving because... Last time we spoke, I was making you laugh just to see all the funny faces you pulled <laughs> as you were like dying of being unable to draw breath. Yeah, that was really cruel, but somehow really fitting as as a, as as we rode together. You know, it was that kind of I'll make him laugh because he'll turn purple because he can't actually breathe and laugh at the same time. Um, and I even as I was dying and going, please stop! I can't do. I can't breathe. Um, I did find it quite funny. It's, it was, it was, you know, typical rowers approach to, oh, he's got long COVID. Let's see how far we can push him before he breaks. Yes, I still, I still get very breathless, as you can probably hear as I talk. So after our first run, however, you will gather, dear listener, and we are talking to you, our special listener, and that's all of you or one of you. We don't know how many we've got. After a first run that had more high notes than an opera for sopranos and castrati, we ended on the twin high notes of the incredible and the inimitable Jack Beaumont and Andrew Triggs Hodge, who were both utterly brilliant as all of our guests have been. And you will gather by the fact we've just rambled through the first 10 or 15 minutes that Broken Oars podcast is back. We are back blathering on in the way that we do so winningly and engagingly and occasionally um, putting our foot in our mouth so firmly that it needs surgical equipment to get it out. We have upcoming interviews with Jez Moore, coach extraordinaire with Sally Kettle, author, ocean oarswoman, public speaker, presenter and all-round renaissance woman, Harry Pearson, <gasps> big COVID breath, journalist and author of some of the best books about sport and sporting endeavours you'll ever read, Gwyn Batten, Olympian Olympic medalist, ocean rower, ocean record holder, Dan Rowan, sport editor for the BBC, has agreed to come on. Martin Cross has just said, yes, he would love to come on. Now, I'm sure that all of these people will realise that it's us. We'll desperately try and get on a proper podcast at some point, but we'll stick with that for now. However, for the moment... You are stuck with us for this episode. We're going back to our roots. We're going back to us blathering and talking complete bollocks because so much has changed. When we launched this podcast, we were in lockdown, a pandemic and a completely incompetent government was stalking the land. Our future was uncertain. Now, though, at the start of 2021, a new year, we look out of the window and what do we see? We see another lockdown. We see a pandemic and an incompetent government stalking the land and an uncertain future. Lewin... What are we talking about today? Does the name Robert Strachan mean anything to anyone? Maybe we should start there. Who I, is he? I, who is he and what's he done? Robert, Robert Strachan is Scottish, okay? Now, I'm well, that's English. Damning. Um, so that, that's just going to be, you know, we'll, we'll just start with that. I mean, it's, it's not quite as bad as if I said he's French or he's kind of like a cross between French and Scottish, but he is Scottish. And, and, and first of all, that's the, that's the thing that's strong to my mind. You, um, you, Robert you are Str- aware, you are aware, aren't you, that I have Scottish 
ancestors and French people in my family. Was that why you said that? No, no, I've just been <laughs> pointlessly, you know, and, you know, I was basically being Southern. I, I sort of, I live closer to France than to Scotland and, and they're Scottish. I mean, I'm going to be rude about them. You can be rude about them as long as you, you, we're very clannish up there. You can be rude about every other tribe apart from the Bells and he's a Strachan, so put the boot in. So, yes, uh, Robert went to the, before this whole pandemic kicked off, in, well, I suppose actually it was actually during pandemic. It was probably while you could still just about get away with doing things without a mask. It was, it was back at the end of the old world. He went to the um, 2020 World Indoor Rowing Championships in Paris, and he raced the 500 metres, amongst other things. Well done, Robert. We're proud of you for holding up the flag of the union. 30-plus category. Um, He went as part of the GB team, and then some, frankly, infuriating little busybody... Um, from the World Anti-Doping Association, I think. I'm not entirely sure of precisely which organisation asked him to pee in the cup, but Robert was asked to pee in a cup. And a whole 10 months later, it turns out that his sample was positive for clenbuterol, terbutaline, and exogenous testosterone. Now... We are going to have to, these are a lot of names. You will have heard of clenbuterol uh, if you follow cycling because there are a lot of O's and O's and O's in cycling these days and there have been for quite some time. Is clenbuterol Um, the one when you run out of flash multi-surface, you go to the back of the kitchen cupboard and you get the clenbuterol out to clean your, your floor? Is that the one we're talking about? No. Clenbuterol is something that vets give to horses that have asthma. Oh, right, because obviously um, when, uh, you see a lot of horses with asthma. So, And it, it's very, very similar as a molecule to um, something called salbutamol, which is known, which is the active ingredient in Ventolin inhalers. That's the blue inhaler. And chocolate um, ice cream. You get salbutamol and chocolate ice cream, right? That's why he took it. He ate ice cream for energy before he did his race. No, no. Um, uh-huh. And bizarrely... Uh, and, and it is genuinely bizarre. Clenbuterol has effects that mimic, in quite good ways, anabolic steroids, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and so you will, you know, it's performance enhancing and it's training enhancing and it will cause you to lose body fat and gain lean muscle and all these fun things. And it's also for horses. And it's very, very difficult, even if you're a asthmatic, as Robert uh, claims to be, to be prescribed clenbuterol because it's for horses, amongst other things, and Robert isn't a horse. Does he work in a stable? Has he, has he tripped over a bucket of clenbuterol and it's got splashed on his skin somehow? No, he works as a physical trainer and rowing coach, or, well, no, he doesn't for the next four years. Are you um, trying to tell me that he's been pinged for using things he shouldn't have been using? Well, yes, he has. I mean, and... Okay, strictly speaking, terbutaline is another asthma medication. It's found in the brown inhaler, something called Bricanil. Um, It's allowed as long as you're only inhaling it, and I presume they can tell this by the dose. Uh, But if you inject it or you ingest it, 
it's a banned substance. And I mean, strictly speaking, like you said, you could have accidentally, I don't know, been weed on by a horse whilst working in a stable and got yourself a dose of clenbuterol because the, they're very, very good at detecting clenbuterol. Very good indeed. So they can detect tiny, tiny little amounts. I'm not, I don't want to be the thick Geordie in this podcast, but unfortunately that's essentially what I am. But are you saying that he could technically use the French tennis player cocaine defense, as in I've never taken it, but I swapped spit with somebody who did while I was snogging them, and that's how it got in my system. Uh, but, but this time, instead of he wasn't snogging someone, he got weed on by a horse. You're saying that this, this could have caused this. In all honesty... If he had eaten a horse that had been treated with clenbuterol, yeah, he could have. And he could have just taken too much of the old terbuslin. The problem was he was also found with exogenous testosterone in his system. And that's the one that you use when you're when you're making like a bechamel sauce for a fish pie. You still No. No? Oh. That that that's the one that turns squeaky little ten year old boys into great big strapping eighteen year old men. Um, it's that stuff. Okay. And I need to review my fish pie recipe because I'm sure I've seen it in there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. If that's in your fish pie, don't go anywhere that people are going to ask you to pee in a cup. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no. So the exogenous testosterone, and there are ways of telling that you have added to your testosterone rather than just operating au naturel. Uh, the exogenous testosterone is a pretty damning one. That that is that doesn't happen by accident. Nobody accidentally slipped and stuck a testo gel plaster upon their upper forearm, or in some cases just behind their scrotum, which is where you're apparently meant to use it. it right? Didn't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know a lot of. Having never taken any drugs of any sort, I, I have no idea how to take these things. Um, that's a mental image that I didn't think I'd get at the start of this podcast. Thanks for that, Loon. Yeah, sorry about that. That is that is where if you are taking your testo gel by um, by patch, that's where you're meant to stick the patch on, just behind your scrotum. Can I just ask? Bridge. Can I <laughs> the Hebden Bridge? Is that what you just called the, the, the Biffin Bridge? The Biffin Bridge. Oh my! Uh, God. Otherwise known as the Bass. The Bass. Okay. The bit between your balls and your yeah. Okay. Got it. Right. Right. Okay. Can I just ask, as the non-scientific one, is there any way that Robert, bless him, could have eaten a contaminated Happy Meal on his way to the race? No. Okay, could he have toured the old Eastern Bloc before going to the race, slept in a cheap hotel where these things had been wedged in a roof tile and snored so much that they'd fallen into his mouth and he ingested them accidentally? No. Has he snogged a horse? He is Scottish. Possibly. Well, he is um, he's Abaddonian Scottish as well, I, I believe. I mean, Strachan, they're like the Campbells and the McDonald's in Scotland. You can't trust any of them. Yeah. Devious, backsliding, always take the shortcut. Don't trust them with your whiskey, your wallet, or your woman. 
Strachan's. That's what my grandma always said, but she was a bell. Yeah. Where, where actually is he from? Is he from the old Eastern Bloc? No. I, it, with, with a name like Strachan, I, I think not. What one such positive test for your turbuslein could have been considered to be a coincidence? Three such positive tests, including the exogenous testosterone smacks of carelessness. You've just, oh my word, you've just elevated Broken Nose Podcast. Our listener thinks that we are two Philistine, borderline illiterate rowing monkeys and you've just referenced oscar wilde you've just elevated the tone of this we're practically a literary salon yeah no um yeah when, when you have a short list of things you've tested positive for it's very hard to argue um even the relatively innocuous ones that might have been accidentally prescribed to your horse by a vet that you then snogged um th- this seems to be a fairly clear cut case of pursuing an advantage by pharmaceuticals um which uh, we agree is really quite naughty on this program and and uh, and we discourage it immensely but i think you know this does kind of go back to the jürgen gate podcast it's, it's been going back onto something that i've been very very concerned about for i think a good five years now i i, I think I've been worried about people shooting themselves full of something and jumping on an erg and producing some very, very good times for a, you know, I, for a lot longer than Trump was president, basically. This is something that, that's really been on my mind. Um, and you, yeah, yeah I mean, he's not the first person to have been popped on an erg, but um, I think he's probably representative. Do you think that the severity and the length of the ban, which is basically a ban from all competition and coaching for four years, is that reflected in the fact that this, the, you know, the, 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 the usual defence, I mean, let's be brutally honest, I can't think of one athlete in my lifetime who, when they were pinged, went, yep, I did it. Why? Because a gold medal is worth a million dollars or a million pounds or because I wanted the fame and the glory and, and the, 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 the hot girls and the sponsorships and everything else. They've all, they've all said the same things. This is pretty clear cut. The, the, these are three substances that shouldn't be found together unless you're a horse with asthma and erectile dysfunction. No, there, there is... We, we can we can sort of discuss kind of like the length of the ban, which is pretty full on. I mean, this is an example is being made here. I, I think it's fair to say a four year ban is a four year ban was given to who's the short little sprinter, Justin Gatlin, um, was given to him on his second offence. And he negotiated that down to a two-year ban. Yeah, I mean, there, there are. I, I look at it and I, I just almost think they've given that ban expecting an appeal, or thinking that this is guy is just a regular run-of-the-mill Joe who's got a voluntary coaching job. Um, he's not going to appeal it, and f- four years does seem harsh. Um, certainly the previous two British rowers 
they they got a lot less and but in you know, the, party drug study drug etc in the in the Jurgen Gate podcast we mentioned the two from the Headington Road Young Offenders Institute who got pinged uh, and we said that it only takes one idiot to completely ruin our sport for everybody else and to and to drag it into the mud along with 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 every other sport that's had a scandal because we we have been over the duration of Jurgen's tenure remarkably clean as a sport and that is something that we hope continues do you think the length of the ban is British rowing putting its, as we say in the north, putting their foot down with a firm hand to go? You do this. This is what's going to happen. Don't do it. I do. Um, I don't particularly blame them. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. But I mean, I I would say that sort of very much we are we are extrapolating a lot. And should Robert wish to? set the record straight if we have been traducing his good name should he wish to appeal um we are willing to listen to his side of the story on air um and we are willing to broadcast this side of the story so um yes we have been poking fun but we do think i think we both think this is a bit of a serious issue and we quite like the sort of we quite like being able to sneer at cyclists yeah, um, especially the middle-aged ones whose lycra doesn't really fit them very well, but also some of the professional ones and, you know, cycling's history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and cycling's present. Yeah. Probably cycling's future. Yeah. But enough about that. Yeah, so, um, Robert, if you if this podcast does, by some miracle, make its way all the way up to Aberdeen, because I know they don't have the internet there, um, please, please get in touch and... Um, we will open your letter with a letter opener because we won't get an email. You can come on the podcast. Which is precisely the invitation we gave to everybody who trolled us about Jürgen and Jürgen's record in East Germany, which is why we did the Jürgen Gate podcast. So if you're listening, Robert, you will get a fair hearing and the chance to state your piece. And despite my colleague, a man whom I love dearly, and I can say that in, a, in a, total, a totally open way in the 21st century, because did you see the Team GB clip of the four winning at Beijing? Yes, they, when I did. they crossed the line and Hodge fell back into Pete Reed's arms and went, I love you, man. And I just thought, oh! And um, yeah, so we can say we love each other without fear or favour, although it'll probably drive, drive people like Nigel Farage mad. Anyway, if you want to come on, Robert, we would love to have you but, but yeah, um, in general, kids, don't do drugs. Because um, A, you can be caught, B, they're not good for you. But if you, we live in the 21st century. If you want to snog a horse, as French tennis players have proved with the cocaine defence, that is entire, we're, we're, we have a wide spectrum now. That's fine. Go for it. You know, as long as it's a horse of consenting age and you both want to do it, I guess. I don't know. Are there still laws about this in this country? Maybe I've just said the wrong thing. I don't know. I it's mean, not something no, I've ever to look I, 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 can, I consider myself to be a widely read gentleman, but consensual horses is, is actually beyond me. Okay. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah, so, so that, that's today's news. Um, neither of us are 
sure on the laws on bestiality, and that's probably a good thing, ladies and gentlemen, because it means that you know, it's it's a bit like murderers who Google how to dispose of a body just before they kill someone. If we did know a lot about the laws of bestiality, you should probably question our integrity around animals. As it is, you could leave your spaniels with us, and they would be perfectly safe. Yeah. Can I just float this actually as a concept? Have you ever wondered why no Spaniels ever make it to senior international level in football? Do, do enlighten me on your thoughts on this matter. Well, um, we have a couple of Spaniels up here in the north, and I've noticed that if you kind of stand in front of them, they will stay stock still. But if you kind of do a little shimmy or a little leg fade, they'll totally buy it and, and like dive in on that side. So I think they've never made it as international central defenders because they wouldn't be able to stay on their feet. They just dive in. They, they, you, you stay still, they stay still. You give a little shimmy, they go straight for the side that gives the shimmy. So any, any half decent competent attacker is just going to sell them a dummy and blast past them. That's why you never see Spaniels representing their countries in major international footballing tournaments. I'm just throwing it out. Fair enough. I don't know anything about football. You, you want a real podcast partner, don't you? You don't want No, this. I'm, just, I'm just like, where the bloody hell did this come from? He's going on about the Spaniels again. Like, what, what, what is this? It's the long COVID, isn't it? You just cannot sit to the strict. I am a little bit delirious, it must be said. But no, I just noticed it. I just, I just, I did a little experiment. You stay still, they stay still. You give a, you sell a little twitch, they go straight in on that side, thinking there's food there or something. So if you were an, an international attacker and you went and you knew you were going to be up against a Spaniel central defender, you'd basically take, take some treats out in your shorts. And then as you move towards them, you'd kind of sell the dummy, give the treat straight past. Because the Spaniels... You know, treat or football, the Spaniards are going to go with the treat every time. That's that's all I'm saying. I, th I think they might... No, I'm not. I'm actually not going to entertain the idea of Spaniels playing football in the FA Cup. This is just... A, this is utterly ridiculous. Well, they have the hair. They have the night... pushed off the ball <laughs> and they, they just... They'd be useless in the air. They'd be... Yeah, but... You know, they, they can make it to, like... Yeah, average half-decent Spaniel can make it to a three-foot-off-the-ground countertop and steal food. That's it. You know, that they are not going to, you know, combat Peter Crouch or Diego Maradona in the air for, for the ball. And not Diego because he's dead. But the thing is that they fit perfectly football's culture. They have the same perms as 1980s footballers. You could put them in... You know, I I could I could just see them running out on the Wembley turf if it wasn't for the fact that that they're hopeless at maintaining concentration when someone is running at them with the ball. Aaron, I've got some really really bad news for you. What's that? I mean, no, no, this is uh, this is going to hurt. Nineteen eighty was forty-one years ago. No, it was like last week or something. <laughs> no, no, it was forty-one years ago. Okay, okay, oh, put it okay, put it this way. In 1980, the Model A rowing ergometer had not been designed, let alone manufactured. What is this heresy? Rowing machines were invented by God at the, the creation of the universe. No. Surely, God is a no. rower. That, that was related that to That was before Concept Two BC. What was Concept One then? Just like row your dinosaur. 
Oh, I shouldn't know this, but I know I, I, I can practically quote uh, the Drones Gacker brothers, and they said the idea behind calling it Concept 2 was that it was to show that they never just go with Concept 1 because they're both engineers. So they always, they design something, test it, to the point of failure, design it again. So you're never going to get anything that's earlier than concept two for them. Oh, I see what you mean. Because concept one will always fail because they'll find a way to break it in testing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, con, con, they will only ever give you the second concept. That is that is both really cool and worryingly Germanic in their approach to engineering. Um, what has changed since we launched the podcast as we launch into our not season two? Well, I, well I've noticed there's a lot more rowing podcasts about because back when we started, Loon, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were none. Is, is that right? There were none. Apart from the ones that there were, yeah, there were none. So it was literally just us. We, we were the first, we were the best, we were the only. Um, other than Rebecca Caro, other than uh, Short and Snarky Coxwains, other than the lightweight bloke from the US who's actually an incredibly powerful rower and is like kind of just But apart from those long, apart from those long established and apart from those long established and, and, and well regarded podcasts, we were the first people to actually do it. Now we've got people like Patricia Carswell who's hoovering up guests like a Dyson on hoovering up guest setting. We've come across some bloke, he's calling himself Martin Cross, doesn't ring a bell, says he used to row a bit, but it turns out he does fantastic in interviews. Um, and now there just seems to be billions of rowing podcasts. I mean, one of the questions we should ask is, should we continue? Our work here is done. You know, we, we have produced a generation of the, who will take it forward. And all we can talk about is snogging horses. Yeah, except this is the thing. This is why I think we should continue, because we are the people who talk about snogging horses. Um, we ask the difficult questions, such as... <laughs> Let's not ask that question. Let's not go there. We've already recorded that. It, it just literally goes nowhere. Um, let's just say we ask the difficult questions that other people don't ask. We provide, well, apparently there's a French stew and the final ingredient to that stew is un mousseau de merde. And we are un mousseau de merde. Um, and without it, the stew would just not be complete. I've never eaten this stew and I don't intend to try, but that's how I see our role. Are you actually saying that we are the drop of poo in the world, in the world of rowing podcasts that make this, make the whole thing palatable? <laughs> <laughs> or or we, we, we make it sparky and interesting. How about that? Or, 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 or we are the speck of grit in the oyster that produces the pearl. Let's put it that way. Let's let's go with that, because let's face it, what we're doing is we're trying to work out our unique selling point on the hoof here in front of a <laughs> live in front of a listening audience, which is never a good idea because we're basically making it up. Yes, let's just say we ask the difficult questions. We ask the questions that no one will ask. So let's ask one of those questions. Lewin, difficult question for you. How was your Christmas and your new year? Um, well, considering I went into the Christmas season considerably fatter than I'd like to be. It wasn't great because normally I have a plan from about the 10th of December, which is two days before my birthday to about the 10th of January, 
to every single day eat some item of Christmas dessert pastry. So it can be like Christmas cake or Christmas pudding or mince pies or stolen. stolen. I love stolen. There is, I don't think I have yet to have been introduced to a kind of pastry or bread and raisin sweet combination of things that I haven't, that's associated with Christmas that I haven't liked. Um, And so I was enormously disappointed that I didn't absolutely stuff my face with these things uh, this year because, like I said, I started out fat. I didn't particularly want to get any fatter. This is down to the slightly dodgy me. Um, And so, yeah, uh, grotesquely stuffing my face will have to happen next year. And bizarrely enough, that's one of the reasons why I got into rowing in the first place. It was the cake and dessert-friendly sport. Ooh, that's interesting. You see, you see, see, this, for me, was the reason that I like keeping fit. Because fundamentally, there has never been a pudding that has been too sweet. There has never been a meal that has been too rich and made with too much butter and cream. I love food. Genuinely, absolutely love it. I think about it. I cook it. I think about how to make it better. I Usually by adding butter and cream. Um, I... There are. I, I, I'm going to tell you this now, and I'm going to tell our listeners. There are so few meals that taste worse because of the addition of bacon fat. And if you're American, this includes desserts and pancakes, which I'm not sure I agree with them, but I'd be prepared to sit down and try it. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's why I kind of realized that I needed to engage in fairly strenuous and long-term physical activity. And that, that kind of got me into running. It got me into swimming. Um, to a lesser extent, it got me into sort of like picking up heavy lumps of metal in the gym. Um, and, yeah, um, that's, that's kind of why... I got into fitness, which is kind of a long way from Christmas, but it was probably kind of sometime around about that sort of January, just thinking I've just been eating cake for the last month. So I'm going to go and get fit now. I think it's a, it's a very opposite point to make because one of the things that we were going to talk about um, or that I thought we might talk about is fitness itself as a as a concept as a as a lifestyle i think it's fitting haha that if i was remotely intelligent that would have been a a deliberate attempt at a pun there and because we're at the point in the year when most people decide to completely change their lives on the entirely arbitrary point one date turns into another we're talking about resolutions or as my children uh would call them revolutions which is you know perfectly opposite as well 
most people, because we move from the 31st of December to the 1st of January, most people will resolve to become better people in inverted commas. It's a driver behind decisions made over New Year that we call New Year's resolutions. They're going to quit something negative. They're going to stop smoking. They're going to stop drinking. They're going to stop overeating or they reframe it and they're going to do something positive. They're going to take up running. They're going to take up exercise. They're going to achieve something in the new year. They're going to set a goal, whether that's more time with the family. What? Martin Cross has just followed us on Twitter. He did say he'd come on. We've arrived, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll shortly be leaving <laughs> when they find out what we're really like. Brilliant. Fantastic. Um, yes, so this idea of fitness, I think you probably have some quite strong views on it, Lewin, because we've talked about them, and I know how you feel about healthy lifestyles and all of the rest of it. I, I didn't know that you started because of the Ben Charles reason, because you've never made a cake that you didn't like. Um, all of these things are laudable. I, I question why we need to change an arbitrary point in the calendar that says one year becomes another. Man-made time is imposed upon universal time to help us keep, you know, find our place in the world and all of those kind of Paul Recurian ideas. But surely we should, A, we should change as soon as we feel the need to change. But what is fitness nowadays, Lou, and what does it mean? How do we approach it? <laughs> I got into an argument with someone on Twitter about this a while ago. No, um, you no, no, I did, I did. With other people. Um, because I, I decided, I don't know if you've seen them, but the playground gym equipment things, these big green lumps of shaped steel hmm. that, that let you sort of do leg presses in a seat and they sort of let you fling your legs backwards and forwards i just think they're a danger to small children yes they are and i think they're absolutely useless for improving physical fitness now somebody came along and said ah you you absolute uh nanny status i bet you can't even define fitness and it was interesting because i couldn't actually but that's okay, because nor can anyone else. Um, fitness is a very difficult to define thing. If you look at the, um, the I want to call it the PEGCSE, they define fitness along nine axes. And it includes strength, cardiovascular fitness, flexibility, and I'm not going to give you the other nine because I can't remember them. Um, but all of them, you could actually you actually sit there and go, oh, no, I actually know that. That's right. That's right. You're, you're right there. That is accurate. Um, as far as I know, the A-level sports science uh, course doesn't define physical fitness. Um, it's basically because there are so many different aspects to physical activity and it's a very difficult everybody kind of knows what physically fit is but it's actually very difficult to define which is irritating because i like being able to define things well let's let's go through some of the ideas that i've kind of jotted down and see if we can tease it out and and arrive at what being fit means in the 21st century in the middle of a global pandemic when it is it is such a loaded concept now what i thought we might do is 
let's look at our parents' generation because it's close enough for us to grasp it. You know, I, I know a bit about my grandparents. I know that, that both grandparents boxed in their youth because that was basically what they did back then. But I don't think they had a fitness habit in the sense that we that we would identify it as. In the 50s, 60s and 70s, it wasn't... People didn't do fitness. They maybe did sports. They maybe had sporting pursuits, I would think. Examples, examples of that. Uh, my dad was a county-level swimmer in the 60s, was good at swimming at school and kind of carried it on. Did he have a fitness habit? No, he had a sport that he did, which was swimming, which he, he enjoyed. He went on to become a, a deep-sea diver, which is, seems quite apposite. He then started weight training in the late 70s to counteract the effects of muscle wastage when he was in deep saturation environments. My mum, as far as I'm aware, played hockey and netball at school and ran cross country. Why? Because that's what you did at school then. It's what we did as well. But that she then did no training for another 20 years, apart from being a teacher and wrangling classrooms full of children, which you know all about, and raising two small children, which we both know all about. And then in her 40s one day, she suddenly put on a tracksuit and a pair of shoes and started running. Uh, and it, the first, I remember the first instances when it happened because I thought I was quite little. I thought, what, what is my mum going to do? Multiple races, marathons, etc. later, she's still training in her 70s. She does yoga and she does H-I-I-T, HIIT training, even though she's had one of the, one of the hips replaced. Um, but that's, they grew up doing a sport they didn't grow up having a fitness habit that they did alongside the rest of their life or they be, or became a lifestyle. Loon, what about your family inclinations? Well, um, bit of an odd one. So my dad was always a phenomenally competitive human being. Um, I think like me until I discovered rowing, he was always looking for his sport. Um, I know he got really quite good at judo to the point where he uh, discovered international competitions and also discovered the very, very strong Bulgarians um, and basically realised at that point that judo was a sport that just relied, you know, essentially how much do you weigh, right? That's your weight category. Who's the strongest? Right, that person's going to win. Um and at that point, he kind of lost interest in judo. Um, I, I believe, although I can't confirm this, right, but this is one of my favourite sports about my dad, uh, who is now no longer with us. Um, he went to an athletics meet with Liverpool University as a runner. And he did his running race, it, it being 1,500 metres or 800 metres. And, I, I, you know, he's probably signed up for several. And it was one of those things where who won the meet was decided by like the total number of points and you couldn't miss any events. Ooh. And so they had a discus thrower and they had a javelin thrower, but they had no one to throw the hammer. And so they said, Ken, can you do this? He's like, I'm a runner, but okay. And he then, you know, he had very long arms, like me, very tall guy, he's taller than me. And he threw the hammer, he won the event, and he set the Liverpool University record for throwing the hammer. And as far as I know, that record still stands. 
Now, that may say a lot more about the quality of hammer throwing at Liverpool University than it does about my dad's ability in the sport, but it does say something about kind of like my dad's abilities and inherent attitude towards competition. He would give things a go and he would absolutely put everything into it right up until the point that he'd break himself. Um, but yeah, he was a pretty good runner. Apparently, he's quite a good hammer thrower. He was a very keen shot for a long time. And yeah, that was, that was and yeah, and, and there was judo and poker, bizarrely enough. He was so, very good at poker. For the first time, I realised where your insane level of competitive drive comes from. It's crackle-esque <laughs> in its insanity. Um, it's obviously from father to son. That's great. But what I think what we're identifying is that our the, the previous generation did things because they enjoyed them, because they liked doing them, maybe because they did them at school and found they were good at them, but they did a, they did a sport or they did a pursuit. What I'm wondering about is fitness is everywhere now. It's in, it's, it's on our, it's in our watches, it's on our Fitbits, it's on our phones, it's on our social media, it's, it's in the attitudes to the way that we live our life, it's in the way that we judge and evaluate people on very, very basic levels. And there's been a shift from people like our, maybe our parents' generation and grandparents' generation maybe doing a sport because they do a sport because they like it or they're from a, a, a background of, you know, um, rugby players or cricket players or, or they, it's just there and it's something they do to a more generalized understanding in 21st century society that we need to be fit. That, that, that's, that's the word, we're, we're fit. We need to be fit. Where does this come from? What does it actually mean, being fit? When did getting fit become the end rather than the means? When did it become separated from physical activity to become a generalized concept? Well, that would mean, and sort of like, if you ask me questions like this, Aaron, one of the dangers is that I'm going to come up with the answer. And bizarrely enough, okay, now, I'm, I'm sure that some people will argue with me, but it started in California. Now, California is a very strange place because California, whatever people want to think about its current status in the second Blimey, the third decade now of the 21st century. Not so long ago, California was a place that it was a frontier. And bits of California that we now think of as international metropolises of the highest order were fundamentally frontier towns less than 100 years ago. And one of the things about frontier towns is that they tend to have a lot more men in them than women. And they also tend to have a lot more men in them who are comfortable with the concept of there being a lot more men than women around. And this has been a history of California. San Francisco is now famous for it, but it what it, Los Angeles should be thought of in exactly the same breath. It has been something of a home for 
gay men for a very long time. It's been home to men who are happy with the concept of spending a very large amount of time around other men without the company of women. And one of the side effects was, of this was that there is an ab, or there was, I mean, there still is, but there was a uniquely flourishing industry by the 1950s in Los Angeles for taking pictures of strapping young men in their underwear. And that then led to these young men becoming more strapping and posing in very masculine fashions in their underwear. And in sometime around about 1960, something called Dianabol started to take off. And this brings us back to the start of our conversation. Dianabol is an anabolic steroid. Um, it was marketed as Winstrol. I might be getting the timings mixed up, but it was essentially, it's what the bodybuilders used. And bodybuilding in its home in California was, it grew out of this industry of providing images of scantily clad, strapping young men in very little clothing. And that's bodybuilding, and that's where it came from. And by the 1970s, physical fitness, particularly for men, was defined or had become defined by images of bodybuilders. This was this kind of very lean, very muscular, abdominal muscles. Abdominal muscles used to be something before like 1960, 1959, abdominal muscles were something you don't really see on boys and occasionally swimmers. If you go back and look at the old Tarzan mo movies with um, Johnny Weissmuller, an Olympic swimmer from the 1930s, he didn't have abs. He barely had defined pectoral muscles. But by the 1960s and the 1970s in particular, and you can see this in Bruce Lee in particular, in a slightly different physique, but still very lean, very muscular, uh, with defined abdominal muscles, this became the image of fitness. This was the peak, this was the pinnacle at which people should aim for. And since then, it has only become more and more prevalent. I think in the 80s, we were, it went away a little bit, possibly also the 90s, different images, different concentrations. But since the year 2000, we have been going back and back and back towards this image, now increasingly both for women and men, of immense muscularity, absolute leanness, and with it, I think this interest in training, not just for a sporting event, but training just for creating the adaptations themselves has come to pass. I have to say that I, I always, even though I've known you for a long time, 
you constantly surprise me in the directions that you take with your answers. And I genuinely wasn't expecting you to take that tack. So what you, but, but it's very interesting because what you're saying is that the, the fitness industry that we have, and that's where we're heading here. We have a fitness industry is driven by culturally held images of what the body beautiful looks like and those images of what what physical perfection look like carry with them a whole raft of cultural values not just cultural values but moral and ethical values in terms of the way you look reflects the sort of person you are so they, yes. they it becomes weighted and freighted with value judgments and and the, the the reason the reason why i'm asking what are we actually training for now it's a bit different if you are a rower uh, or uh, or you are a runner who is in competition or you are a, a taekwondo player who is training for competition or, or anyone who who has a, who trains for a sport the reason that and i would imagine you'd agree with this lou and the reason that we did all of the hours of training that we did as rowers was because we knew that we were getting into a boat at the end of it and we were going to go and race it at some point. There was an end point to the training. We weren't just training as an end point to itself. Actually, there's a question. Why do people need personal trainers? Why don't you just put your, your trainers on and go out for a run and do burpees in the park? If I didn't turn up to the boathouse, I knew that you were there and Ben was there and Chapman was there and Hancock would be there and Matt would be there and Pete would be there and Lucy would be there. And it, so and we'd be talking about you behind your back and you'd be talking about me behind my back. And, and, uh, you know, obviously if, if I'm there, you can't do that. But also if I'm there, I, I can talk about the person who didn't turn up behind their back as well. Was being part of a crew, like having a personal trainer, is that why people hire them? Okay. So again, you, dangerous question to ask me because my wife is a exercise psychologist and she actually studies all this stuff. And so one of the things is that, are you basically saying that I should ask you to leave now and ask Haley to come in? She will tell us to go to hell because she, she's got better things to do than to like get involved in our daft podcast. But no, so one of the things that um, is noticeable is that if you do this thing, what, so more gyms aren't doing it these days, but it used to be a big thing. You had to join your gym and you had a six-month contract. Yeah. Okay. And people said, oh, this puts people off. This puts people off. And you should just have like a one month contract or like a one week rolling contract and you just stop it with like a month's notice. And what it turned out was that that means that people go to the gym less and they're more likely to stop going to the gym and actually making that commitment saying, you know, if you have a personal trainer, one of the biggest things about your personal trainer is you've said you're going to be there at eight o'clock on a Wednesday and a Friday evening, and you're going to train for an hour. And so congratulations, you have just got 120 minutes of exercise out of your 150 minutes of government mandated exercise on the books. And that is a very, very useful function of people just to be a diary entry and a talisman. So if you don't have an exercise habit, which is what we developed as, as rowers, which is, which is it's, it's 
any given day, what are we doing this evening? We're going to the boathouse to train. Um, a personal trainer acts as a, as you, you form a contract with them uh, and they act as, as, as a external conscience and prompt because of all. And, but that then comes back to the idea of values because you're basically using them to shame yourself into doing something that you could just do by putting a pair of shoes on and cracking on with it. Well, yeah, essentially exercise and, and physical fitness. Um, whatever we mean by physical fitness, and like we said, there's no good, all-encompassing definition of physical fitness, but being fit is a high-status thing. It's something you can say, look at me, I'm fit. Um, and I'm not the only person who's like put this into a very, very cultural context. And it is quite a cultural context. And you could have said, you could also say that this has been an example, a very, very successful example of a public health nudge. And it's been going on since probably the mid eighties when governments realized more people died from heart attacks and cancer than they were from infectious diseases and uh, badly made cars. The governments want us to get fit, not just to look pretty. Actually, governments don't really care whether or not we look aesthetic. Governments, governments want us to be aerobically and aerobically fit and physically strong. I imagine that there is out there, I mean, I certainly know there is a measure of physical strength for geriatrics below which doctors start to get very worried. Can I just ask, would we pass that test in our, in our present weakened state? Can you stand up from an armchair without your hands on the arms of the armchair? Takes me a while and I need a run at it, but yeah, probably I could manage it. Then that, if you can't do that, a doctor would judge a geriatric person to be in an enormously vulnerable state. So any accident that happens to that, if a geriatric person is in the position where they cannot lift themselves out of the chair without pushing off with their arms. If they can't lift themselves out of the chair full stop, they are this close to their last ever hospital visit. But if you can't lift yourself out of a chair without using your hands and something puts you in the hospital, they reckon you're not going to leave. Can I just ask, and this is, is this is in all seriousness, because Lou and I are of a certain age and we are heading towards um, what used to be called our golden years, but in our case will be our, our, our working years. Is this in any way, is this measure in any way Spaniel related? If, uh, if, an, if, an, if an international Spaniel is running at a geriatric with a football and they can't get out of the chair, is that what we're talking about here? That they can't actually, is, is it some kind of... You know, they can't defend the goal. Is this why you never see geriatrics in armchairs playing for England at centre-back? 
that's one of the many reasons. In case another international team sneakily puts puts a spaniel on the field and they just can't they can't yeah. deal with the spaniel running at them. Yeah, that that's that that I just what is the bloody spaniel thing, man? <laughs> it's just like you got spaniels on the brain. I've I've realised recently that there's a lot more to spaniels than than meets the eye. You know, other than other than the, the the perms that never left the '80s, and also, can I just obviously because I'm going to use some of my some of my you know qualifications here because because you're let's be honest, you're the one who deals with horses who take cocaine and snog French tennis players, and I I'm the one who debates things like etymology and Kipling on our Twitter thread. You say there's no workable definition or there's no standardized definition of what fit means. Let's try and unpick it and see why it's been freighted with all of these cultural and ethical and moral values where it's become a thing and the thing has become an industry. So fit, the word first comes into the English language around the 15th century. You will be disappointed, Lewin, to know that it has nothing to do with cardiovascular output or bench press maxes. It was a word that had a moral meaning. Shakespeare used it in Henry VIII, I believe was one of the first recorded usages. The King's New Secretary Gardner in the play Henry VIII is a fit fellow for a king, meaning he is a suitable person to engage with the king. Let's just take a sidebar there. When In Henry VIII, we're talking about a man whose moral probity is beyond reproach and question. Henry VIII, let us not forget, was Fedor Defensor, defender of the faith. He had a divine right to rule. He was second only like to Matthew God. Like Matthew Pinson. Very like Matthew Pinson. He had a divine right to rule. He's second only to God in the great chain of being. And because he murdered women, including a lot of his wives, he was a monstrous sociopath and complete bullshit artist. He is beyond moral reproach. Sidebar on the monarchy aside, humanity fitted into a divinely ordered universe in those days. If something was fit and proper, it meant that it fitted in a moral and an ethical sense. It becomes linked to physicality later on and around the 19th century. And because we're British and everything is basically a footnote to the Victorian period in our country, including our infrastructure. It really enters it in the Victorian period, which is where Lewin as a scientist can leap in. This is when rigor and vigor become bywords, as does competition, survival, and so on. Thanks not to Darwin, who never actually used the phrase survival of the fittest. Huxley did, and Darwin endorsed it. But it becomes a take on how species evolves. Everything becomes a competition. Fitness becomes athletic as well as ethic and moral. Racehorses become defined as being fit to race. People would respond to the question, how are you, by saying, oh, I'm fit as a fiddle. I've never felt better. It becomes something that becomes separating. It becomes a denoting of quality and value. If you were fit you are better than someone who was not fit. You are fitter than them. They are fitter than you. Things are fit for purpose. And it also coincides with the rise of leisure and sporting activities in Britain. Fitness is something that we do in our time off. That's when it becomes a thing. Is there anything that you would argue with? I mean, obviously the idea that Henry VIII was a monstrous sociopath is, is you know, I know that, that because of your southernness, he, he's our monarch and you will defend him, surely. He was very kind to all of his wives. He made sure the executions had very sharp axes. I, I, I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable with monarchs that aren't actually German. Um, so well, good job all of ours are then. 
this idea of fitness as a moral thing, I mean, let's face it, both you and I are as guilty of anyone of putting a moral worth to oxygen transport. Well, I, I don't know how much of a terrible thing it is. Is there is there not a moral worth to being physically as well as morally fit? Do the two things not? You know, I I would I would actually say unless you actually believe in the concept of the ghost in the machine that we are we are spirits residing within a exchangeable physical being and that we could simply jump into another physical being does not a healthy body equal a healthy mind i think it it does but it does because the word itself when it was originally coined was freighted with moral and ethical values and they became translated into physical fitness because of the, the way that our civilization, and essentially that's what we, we live in. We, we are not the end point of civilization. We are part of an evolving civilization. The moral and ethical, ethical values that meant one thing when, the, when the, the, the word was minted and first used become then freighted with something else when we come into the idea of physicality being important and being fit for purpose in the age of vigor and rigor that the Victorians were. Um, and then it, it does become something, it, it, is, it, it has always had etymologically something to do with denoting a quality and a value. You are either fit or you are not. You are a fit consort for a king or you are not. There, there is something about that that becomes linked with physicality and then as we move through time into the 20th century, it becomes a denotation of racial value. This is, in the 19th century, we're talking about the age of um, European imperialism, where civilization was seen as a continuum and was also unfortunately seen as something you could directly see in action by moving between Europe and say India or Europe and Africa there was this idea that one represented a pinnacle and the other one represented a starting point and you could see all points on the graph in between. Weirdly enough, because of the, the um, because of where you've taken it from the idea of the body beautiful arising in California, this racial value actually was massive in America. The idea that we need to be fit, we need to activate our bodies, especially the white male body, was described as an, at the time in, in the early 20th century as a necessary response to the threat to white supremacy that was posed by increasing immigration to the US, largely from Europe, but also from other companies, uh, sorry, from other countries. And that equation of physical exercise with moral and ethical and ultimately national purity reached a terrifying apex in Nazi Germany. So when we look at fitness in the 21st century, it's preloaded. It's preloaded with all of these historical and cultural values that are hugely problematic. And they manifest as problematic in the way that we approach getting sweaty today. Would you, would you not say we live in an age where we are all individuals, even though every piece of empirical evidence indicates that to combat our mental health, our physical health, our obesity epidemics, what we need is to reconnect with ourselves, with each other and our communities. 
but we're sold the idea that the world is a hard and cruel place and to survive and thrive we've got to be fit we're in competition with ourselves with each other with our friends with our families our cause fitness is now an obligation if you're not fit you are less than somebody who is fit is that a good is that a good way to look at how we approach our fitness though Oh, let's come at this from the point of view of benthamite utilitarianism, which is, you know, flawed because the utility monster, I know all these philosophical arguments, but um, I can't really, you know, well, I might be able to speak, I know a little bit about the history of fitness in the US, but in the UK, we have this interesting and strange thing called the National Health Service, which is if not unique in the world, it is fairly rare in the fact that our government pays for our healthcare. And that's the overwhelming majority of people receive their healthcare from on, on the government's dime. And this essentially means that concepts of fitness and the morality of fitness suddenly become a public interest. If I am unfit, or here's an interesting point, if I take my fitness too far and I injure myself and I require treatment on the NHS, others are contributing to that and they can make their judgments about my fitness or lack of fitness or my overly enthusiastic pursuit of fitness and i think that makes in this country fitness an unusually moral thing and kind of fitness and health is an unusually moralistic pursuit because of this public interest in the fitness of others. I think that's a very valid point and a very interesting one. We are a country, let us not forget, whose Catholicism was removed and replaced by a Protestantism that became a Puritanism whose long shadow we haven't ever quite fully escaped from where it, it, things have to have a purpose. You can't just do something because you feel like it. You, there has to be a reason why you do it. There has to be an output. It has to be measurable. Generally in this country, we treat everything from our work lives to our leisure lives as things that we need to measure in terms of output and progress and getting, and getting better and growth. Whereas, uh, if, but that makes fitness and being fit an obligation that we need to be fit to keep our place in the race. We need to be, if we aren't fit collectively, then the health of the nation is, you know, we, it's reflected as we, we're not a fit nation or we're not a fit society somehow. I mean, you have small children. I have small children. They never, they never, when they're dancing to under the sea, they never, when they're running around the garden, making themselves sick with delight and chasing each other, they're not putting it on Strava going, yep, yeah, I, 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 I did 40 laps of the garden faster than I did them the day before. They're just enjoying 
the joy, it's the joy of movement. It's the joy of being a little physical animal. It shouldn't necessarily have to be a moral obligation, but we are encouraged to look down on those who don't engage in fitness in this way. Um, you know, you only have to look at empl employee health programs and insurance discounts offered to people who regularly go to a gym. You don't, you shouldn't have to do fitness because you feel morally obligated to do it. You should do it because moving is fun. Getting sweaty is fun. We're physical animals. We are built to move. We're not built to sit on our asses, but we've created a world where we do. Um, yeah, but also at the same time, sitting on our backsides can be a lot of fun, particularly if there's Netflix and chocolate croissants. This, this is, this is one, I, I think we're just looking at the, the complexities of plenty. We are, we live in a society full of abundance, not that we have eliminated scarcity as Thomas Sowell will tell us, but we live in a highly abundant society where we can eat ourselves into the point of illness where we can actually not move to the point where we are ill from lack of movement and lack of exertion. And the reason why we do that is because we have given ourselves more fun alternatives. That, and, and that, that's kind of, you know, I, I, I have this personal belief that nearly everything that has gone wrong in the world, in the Western world at the moment, everything we describe as a problem is actually the side effect of a bigger problem that's being solved. Actually, there's probably not, I mean, no, every non-moralistic problem. So let, let's do the, let's do the biggie. Greenhouse gas induced global warming. That's happened because we discovered how to dig fossil fuels out of the ground and power the most advanced, safest, and most plentiful society in history. And the entire history of our species, we live longer, we live safer, we live more interesting and bountiful and entertained lives than we ever have before. But there's a consequence. The, the latest one, so I was, I was listening to a podcast um, about government debt. And the thing they were worried about was not this kind of surge of short-term borrowing, but actually the long-term problems associated with an aging population. But the aging population means we're living longer. That's actually a good thing, but something bad comes with it. And I think that the fact that we have you know, particularly now, moralized fitness made being physically fit a high status pursuit, an aspirational thing that everybody should, if they are good people, aspire to be like. And, you know, really, what's stopping you? There's no excuse. All of these things is a consequence of the fact that we have created a world of ease and plenty. And I think that it may be a necessary con consequence. We may have to do things very much 
in the way that when you were revising, you would say, right, I'm going to write this essay for half an hour and I'm going to stop and I'm going to have a cup of coffee or I'm going to watch television 20 minutes, whatever it was that got you to revise for another half hour and breaking up that sort of half hour then half hour, then another half hour. And then before you know it, you've done like six hours of revision that day. Um, we may have to find ways to trick our collective selves into being physically capable of living the lives that we want to live. I think that's a really good way of putting it, that we need to trick ourselves into being physically active as a consequence of the world that we have created, which means that physical activity is now a choice rather than an imperative. Yeah, and, and if, you, if you kind of look at all these things, you look at, like I was saying about, you know, the six-month membership at the gym, it's a way of tricking yourself into, well, I've got to go back to the gym and pay for it. I can't stop paying for it for six months until it becomes a habit. Uh, or, you know, those carbon fiber golf clubs or that carbon fiber bike or that, <laughs> frankly, anything with carbon fiber because it costs a fortune. Um, just this kind of like committing yourself to something through either a financial expenditure or a promise to others and, you know, the personal trainer. Is that personal trainer simply there to replace the fact that some people don't have time to join a sports team that they promised their time to? Um, so they promised their time to the personal trainer. His job, in much the same way that I as a teacher, principally babysit people until they're 16 and then I start educating them about chemistry is the job of a personal trainer or a coach or a fitness influencer or any of these people to act as a trick to get us to do actually something we enjoy, something we know will benefit us, will benefit us collectively, or is it a way that other people can trick us into removing our money from us for stuff that we might do ourselves? It's an interesting question because the, what you're essentially saying is the moral and ethical values we attach to the, the idea of fitness being fit and the physical values we attach to it are a consequence of being a highly evolved society where being physically active is a choice and it's a choice among a multitude of choices so in order for us to do that we need to be um, led towards it given nudges towards it because there are so many other things that we can choose from it's also a consequence of living in a consumer society that only works if we all keep buying stuff and that includes fitness and the ideas of fitness now you, you and i are obviously of a certain age we we can remember most of the fitness crazes of our lifetime I'm, I'm sure we now have apps for fitness you need to have the the right kit and if you have the right kit then you need to get the new kit we see this with cyclists you know you get a perfectly good bike and then they bring out a sprocket set that's 
one grams lighter. Oh, I've got to get the, you know, I have to get the next, the next bit of kit. Or you do boxer size. Well, you should be doing Zumba. Well, you do Zumba, you should be doing boot camp. You run. Okay, nobody does Zumba anymore. Well, everybody uh, except uh, Zumba is dancer size for people who can't dance. Okay, exactly. So these crazes come and go, and they're all selling us the idea of, of doing these activities for whatever freighted reason that, that, that is attached to them. Can we actually ever get back, do you think, to the idea of just moving because we're animals and we're built to move? No. I don't think we can. Because I think laziness and the desire to move are equally strong. However, we are no longer motivated by hunger. We are no longer motivated. You know, I, I think a lot of this kind of looks at a sort of return to nature ideal as like, you know, if I had to go and haul my water up the hill from the well and chop my own firewood and hunt deer and gather berries or grow corn and all of these things, um, you would be physically fit. But I would also say people who live such lifestyles were very physically fit until they weren't and then they died. And I think that everything we're doing now is essentially replacing the fact that previously our desire to move, our desire to exert ourselves. You know, one of the things that I've always said about rowers is basically rowers are the guys who, before sliding seats were invented, would be very, very happy seeing if they could push the plow faster than the oxen. Okay? But... We've got tractors, and you can't push a plough faster than a tractor. Those things go about 15 miles an hour. They're huge. And we, we have managed to successfully remove all these motivations for movement from ourselves. And now I think we need new ones. And I think that we do need to be very ca careful about those motivations. And I'll be the first person going back to the first thing we talked about. So much of what we see as the exterior signs of fitness, and if you go on Instagram for five minutes, you'll find this, and then I would recommend you leave because Instagram's a poisonous and despicable place. Um, so many of these exterior signs of fitness are pharmacologically enhanced. And we should, you know, do a lot more things thinking of like, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if I can chop up a load of firewood or I wonder if I can carry large pails of water from a well a hundred yards away or something like that. I don't know. But I also think it's entirely reasonable just to go to a gym as sterile and artificial as it is and pick heavy things up and then put them down again. I, th I think within that, you will find an interest and a reason. And as 
monitored and enclosed and sterile as it is, it is actually better than the alternative, which is, let's face it, not hunting a deer in the woods with a spear. It's watching Netflix. Well, I think that's really interesting because what when when you said yeah when you said yes if I had to chop my own fire I wouldn't carry water a hundred yards from a well and hunt deer with my bare hands I would be physically fit up until the point when I wasn't anymore but also you wouldn't do all of those things and then go to the gym it's so true. so what we've essentially done is we have removed the need to be physically fit as a prerequisite for our survival and made it an optional choice, which is why we have the nudges that we have um, and the, the, why the word fitness has become freighted with, with moral, political and ethical ideas. But it, it's really interesting that you say, okay, when I was 16, I come from the northeast of England. When I was 16, I went to the local gym, which was um, run by Tony and Kirsty Wade. Kirsty Wade was a very, very fast 800-meter runner who was the only people who were faster than her were East Germans who were using very um, dubious fuel. Um, I went to the gym when I was 16. Most of my friends went to the pub. Uh, because that's basically what most 16-year-olds do at some point. If it's not drinking cider by the War Memorial, it's trying to get into pubs and clubs before you know the age of 18, because that, that's what you do to pretend to be grown up. And interestingly enough, a lot of those friends who you know took the piss out of the fact that I went to the gym, and I, I quite enjoyed that, but wasn't really satisfied, and then I got into running through Kirsty, which is quite difficult when you're 14 stone to run a half marathon as fast as a 10 stone wet through bullet and then various, you know, through boxing, which is actually really good fun and incredibly hard work, eventually found my way to rowing. I used to get the piss taken out of me while they were all, you know, um, still going to the pub. But periodically they would then go, actually, I need to lose a bit of weight. I need to get fit. I need to get off the couch and do things. You know, what would you suggest? And I tried most of the usual things, you know, start running by run one lamppost, walk the next two, do that for 10 minutes, try that for a week. And then the next, you know, and I'd, all of the methods you use to get people into fitness. Cause when you start from a standing start, if you're not brought up sporty, getting fit's quite hard and then staying fit is quite hard. But once you're actually in a place where fitness is a lifestyle rather than a penance that you do for your lifestyle, you recognize the uncomfortableness of it as being a positive and you actually embrace it and you learn to recognize the, you know, the, the spectrum of feelings when you're lifting heavy weights or you're, or you're rowing long distances on a rowing machine or short, fast distances on a rowing machine. And most of the friends who said, can you help me, you know, I want to, I want to get a bit fitter. Can you help me develop a running program? Can you help me with the gym program? It usually happened at this time of year and it never lasted very long because they saw it as something they had to do to balance out their lifestyle rather than embracing it as part of their lifestyle. That doesn't mean that I wasn't, I was a joyless Puritan, you know, yes, Sean was the first on the dance floor in his playboy bunny ears and budgie smuggler speedos, but I wasn't far behind him. And I've come home with the morning milk a few times as, as we all have. 
but when it's when fitness becomes intrinsic to who, how you see yourself and and you know having long covid has not been fun because it, i might joke about being able to get a sweat on by walking up, upstairs but actually i really want to go for a run i really want to go and i can't what does that mean Lewin, in terms of people who are now starting their fitness journey because it's new years if it's really hard to stick to it when you see it as a penance for your lifestyle rather than a lifestyle choice that you enjoy well <laughs> my wife the exercise psychologist who has spent her professional life trying to persuade people to exercise in scientific ways emphasized the fun not the pain so so she actually got very cross with boris johnson no, now I, <laughs> I, I'm, I i am i'm gonna i'm gonna say i'm deeply ashamed of my frankly unpatriotic missus for getting cross with the uh, with the elected prime minister of the land because you're not allowed to do that that's frankly wrong no one else is getting cross with boris johnson at the moment doing a fine um, when when he had his long covid and he came out no he didn't have long covid he just had short covid didn't he and he came out of that and he went on his health kick yeah um and he said something that you know i agree with 100 percent, which is when you exercise first thing in the morning when you go for the run you've done the hardest thing of the day first thing of the day she said no don't tell people it's the hardest thing of the day tell people it's the most fun thing of the day yeah, he um, emphasized, he emphasized the negative, which 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 I did to which I did to draw to draw out the point. Yes. Yeah, and I I would say that sort of if if you're listening over the shoulder of your your rowing partner or buddy, um, and you're thinking about maybe you need to get into this whole exercise and fitness business like they are, um, I'm going to say you know, actually start by going and, and maybe just, I don't, well, I want to say chopping up wood, but then you might cut your foot off or something. Using an axe, it's not an easy thing to do. Put on your favourite tunes and dance around the kitchen till you get out of breath. Yeah, or, or quite literally buy a pair of trainers and go for a long, fast walk in the park. You're still allowed to do that. And, and 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 don't don't think you have to go every day. Don't go to the same park. Try and find new parks. Novelty is good. Um, vary it a bit. Then maybe think about running. But you know, possibly dancing around the park. You know, do it is worth taking. You know, uh, throw a ball around. Take a child. Chase a child around the park. Your own child, an entirely willing child, a child that's laughing, not screaming. But if you haven't got a child, if you haven't got a child, it, it's okay to just find one outside of Tesco's and use that one, right? No, no, it's not. Spaniels? It's not, no. Spaniel, even then it's best if it's your own Spaniel. Um, okay. You know, provable microchip and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, don't just throw the ball and let the dog run after it run after the dog the dog will yeah. have a lot more fun as well um don't treat it as a penance don't treat it as something yeah. you have to do for your moral worth treat it as fun getting sweaty is fun feeling yeah. your heart rate go up is fun you know dancing around the kitchen to abba which i have done 
not recently because I have long COVID, is a huge amount of fun. Sorry, did you say ABBA? Yeah, they're great. They're melodies. You can't see this, people. You can't see this, dear listener, but Lewin's face is, is writhing like a man who's just swallowed poison because he, he knows that I grew up in the same genres as him and I just admitted to, to liking a Swedish pop band, but I will, I, Abba is a hill that I will die on, young man. And if that yeah. means that we don't do okay, the... Okay, don't, don't joke about that because you'll make it said exactly the same thing about Abba. He said, you know, I will die on this. I think he was 26 <laughs> at the time. It doesn't have to be Abba. If if you're dancing around Lewin's kitchen, then Devon Townsend is perfectly acceptable as well. That's fine. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say, do things with other people. It helps to have a goal, but I always worry that once the goal is done, then you stop. I I'd say try and find something that's fun. I don't think that you, you know as a New Year's resolution. Here's an idea for you: don't commit to a thing. Commit to trying things. Commit to saying, I'm going to give that a go and commit to feeling a bit stupid. Now, we've said don't necessarily go rowing. I'm going to say that if you want something that you can do every weekend with a lot of other people that's actually remarkably interesting and challenging and gets you outdoors rowing can actually be a genuinely brilliant thing. So, um, and possibly approach it with a slightly healthier attitude to competition than maybe you or I have. And just and say... And indeed Robert Strachan did. We're <laughs> But Robert, you're welcome to come on the, uh, the programme and tell us all about it. Um, but yes, um yeah come and yeah just just give it a go it can be it can be a huge amount of fun it doesn't have to be insane you can okay and this is important you can be a rower without rowing machines yes it's a huge amount of fun i think that's a good place to leave it don't put pressure on yourself don't treat it as a penance. Don't think of it as something you need to do because of a moral or ethical imperative. Do it because it's fun. Enjoy the uncomfortableness of being physical for the first time if this is the start of your journey. If you are already physical, try some different stuff. If competition is your thing, if Strava is your thing, if if beating the local Spaniels in the park over five kilometers is your thing, then report back to us. But you don't have to take on the moral values and the ethical values and the the nationalistic values that the word the word tends to be freighted with it. Just do it because it's fun. Yeah, I think that's a good one.